we talked about the ease of compromise. And so today, today we're wrapping up with the beauty of conviction. So last week we know it's real easy to get off track, and today we're learning about, guess what? There's conviction to help you get back there. <laughs> the Holy Spirit guides us. Apathy hinders movement. We must train our spiritual senses, and closeness with God establishes identity. That's what we're going to explore today. We live in a world full of compromises. Let's be a people who take joy in the conviction of our great God. There's a good book called Beautiful Resistance. And the author, John Tyson, says this. The joy and satisfaction that comes from being faithful to Christ will always be richer than the mere ease that comes from drifting along the cultural currents. Well, you know from last week I like to define words, so let's define conviction. What are we talking about today? Conviction has two parts to its um, definition. One is that it is a fixed or firm belief. Do you want me to use a handheld? My little ringy? Am I driving you crazy? Cool. I thought I could drive you crazy real fast. go. Is that better? All right. Now your ears won't bleed. How's that? Nobody wants that. <laughs> All right. So one part of the, the word conviction is a fixed or firm belief. The other aspect is the act of convincing a person by argument or evidence. So I want to talk about both of those aspects of the definition today. It's easy to drift off course. We know that. It is easy to define for ourselves a theology that feels comfortable and that we deem best. It is a much harder to keep our lives focused and steadfast on what God says to be true and beneficial. And it can be challenging to live with convictions, a firm or fixed belief, because if they are biblical convictions, they go right up against what the world says. And it causes some discomfort often. When our practices and our beliefs are biblical, it creates uncomfortable posi positions that we're put in. Now, the discomfort should only be because God's word convicts of sin. It really shouldn't be because of the way we are treating people. I want to point that out. God's word convicts. His spirit convicts. His people convict, but we'll get to that in a moment. That other aspect of the word, the to be convinced of something, to be shown evidence of something, that is the Holy Spirit's job. Thankfully, he is there to refocus our wandering hearts. Jesus actually told his disciples, it is better for you if I go. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing there with Jesus, the Son of God, and he's like, you know what? It's just better if I go. If I go back up to heaven, it's going to be good for you. And they're probably bewildered like, what? No, no way, please don't leave us. Please, I know I would be thinking that. And he says in John 16, verses 7 and 8, but in fact, it is best for you if I go away, because if I don't, the advocate or 
counselor won't come. If I do go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The word in Greek for counselor is parakletos, which is the word that was used uh, for legal assistants who would plead a cause or plead. And the Holy Spirit's job is to present facts, expose truth in our lives to convince us then we need to turn around, go the other way, right? Repent and move from our sin. He convicts unbelievers to show them the truth of God for what it is. He convicts our hearts back to Jesus. He corrects faulty views of who Jesus is. And finally, the verse mentions that he convicts of a time of judgment. See, the reality is there is going to be judgment for both humans and Satan, Right? Jesus' work on the cross was a big moment spiritually, right? Victory. But Satan, Satan is still wandering around right now, right? He's wandering around like a criminal awaiting his judgment, and it's coming. And sometimes we don't like to talk about that because it's also coming for us. But don't worry. We have the Holy Spirit who convicts us and brings us back to Jesus, just have to let him. I want to make a little side note that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not ours, right? Right, church? Nod with me. Yes? Okay. Sometimes it's really easy to want to convict others of what they're doing wrong. Not our job. That is not for us to do. The Bible is very clear that is the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus' example was to show care, concern, kindness for those with no relationship or no understanding of who his father was. I pray that we follow his example. Should we be tellers of truth to the people in our lives? Yes, absolutely. Please, please tell people truth. But do it in love. That is biblical. Speak the truth in love. It's not our job to convince people. It's not our job to impose biblical standards on their lives. I've noticed something about our world, and maybe you have too. They don't like authority. <laughs> they don't like correction, right? You're laughing because you know it's true. People do not like authority and correction. It's uncomfortable. Nobody likes to hear what they're doing wrong. But as Christ followers, we're supposed to allow God to do that. His word, his spirit, and his people he uses to convict our hearts. And I want to challenge you with that today. Allow his authority in your life. Allow his correction in your life. Because the reality is when we fix our hearts on lesser things, we get distracted, and then we get apathetic and just stagnant. I don't want us to be Christians just in title, right? I want us to be moving. I don't want apathy hindering our movement or suppressing our passion. Man, I pray that nothing would suppress our passion, our excitement for who Jesus is. I think, unfortunately, sometimes apathy infects those around us. It is very easy to just sit back, right? If you're thinking of, like, exercise, it is very easy to just stay sitting, 
right? Um, it is hard to get up early and to go out and take a jog. Now, some of you do that really well. Way to go. <laughs> some of you don't <laughs> because it's just easier to sit, right? Because that's sometimes what apathy does in our lives. It causes us to just sit, to stay put. It hinders our movement. But I hope, right, I'm challenging you today. If you are a believer in Christ, I'm prayerful that you will be the spark that ignites flames all around you. With your passion for Jesus, your excitement about what he did on the cross for you would just flow out of you. There's a beautiful saying, and I don't know who said it. Probably some of you will immediately recognize it. And it said, tell Jesus to everyone you meet, and if you have to, use words, right? Tell the world by the way that you act, by the way that you think, just by who you are. Tell the world about Jesus. Do we have a hunger for him? Do we make it a practice of seeking his face? Do we allow accountability into our lives to help hold us to what he's called us to do. The Holy Spirit's conviction shows us evidence of what we are missing and moves us closer to Jesus, which is the only place that we can find purpose and wholeness. Our world is looking to be whole, right? We have the answer. It's Jesus. I want to specifically take some time to talk about God using his people to convict I do realize, I just told you, it's not your job to convict others. I got that. I do remember me saying that. So I want to flesh that out a little bit. What I mean is that as we are speaking to others, God uses us, right? As we are speaking biblical truth into people's lives, God uses us to convict people of what he's already doing in their life. He's already working. We see this in Acts, when Paul talks with some people, he, he finds Lydia, and upon hearing his words, she chooses salvation. So Acts 16, 13 through 15. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to the riverbank, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak to some women who were gathered there. One of them was Lydia. She was a merchant of expensive purple cloth, and she worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Did Paul do anything special there? No. He did not convict her heart. God is the one who opened her heart for her to receive salvation. Paul was just doing what he loved to do after being radically saved, after being radically turned around from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian. He was just talking about Jesus. Now he had a firm and fixed belief in Jesus. He had conviction, and he was just obedient to share truth. All the work was on God. <laughs> Take the stress off of yourself it is not your job to convict others. It's the Holy Spirit's. Thank you. Just to lovingly share the truth of who God is. Just talk to people about what he has done in your life. That's all you have to do. You don't have to work about the convincing part. Don't worry about that. That's not on you. 
Last week I mentioned that we are who we are based on the time we spend, who we're with, what we consume that shapes us into who we become. And in Proverbs, we see a verse that probably some of you will recognize, and it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So one friend sharpens another. It turns out I am not well-versed in blacksmithery, and I don't think that's a word. (laughs) So I had to do a little research, right? I had to read about what that's all about. What do you mean iron sharpening iron to rub it together? Like, I I don't know, (laughs) right? So I did some reading, and as it turns out, You cannot just take two pieces of metal and start rubbing them together and they automatically get sharp. That's not how it works. (laughs) You just get a lot of friction and heat, which probably most of us would agree is not always great for relationships. (laughs) A lot of friction and heat, right? Um, So here's what I learned. I'm going to share it with you because maybe you don't know this either. Three things come into place here in order to sharpen what you are rubbing against. First, the material doing the sharpening has to have the proper grit. Second, the angle being used is very important. And third, the correct amount of pressure is necessary. Those three aspects have to be there if that piece of metal is going to get sharp, right? So think of your friendships. Think of your relationships. There are certain things that have to be there in order to sharpen the other person. If you are both at the same level spiritually, that's okay. But, like, you're not going to get sharpened by each other, right? you got to be around people who are one, two, three steps ahead of you. Look for people and surround yourself with people that are going to lift you up and not bring you down. You be the spark that is there igniting the flame in your friendships. I would echo the thought of iron sharpens iron with this, that the significance of surrounding ourselves with godly people who will help us grow is a directive of God to believers. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says this. Dear brothers and sisters, if, any, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation about yourself. Share with each other burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Just so we don't live arrogantly, verse 3. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. That is said in love, (laughs) okay? Jesus still loves you, and you are important to him. This is just pointing out we should not live arrogantly, right? We should not think we are too good to come down to someone else's level to help them up out of the mud. I've said that recently to someone. I love getting down in the mud. I love that. I count that an honor. When you in this church come to me and say, hey, I need some prayer, I need some help, I'm like, okay, let's get in that mud together. I'm going to help pull you out because that's what God's called me to do. He's, helped me. He's called me to help you with this burden. He's called me to gently and humbly point out something in your life. Church, let's not go around blasting each other for sin that we see in each other's lives The word says gently and humbly, right? It's okay as fellow believers to say, hey, I see this in your life. And in love, I want to point it out. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to ask some clarifying questions. God's called us to do that as a body of believers. 
And that's why fellowship with believers is vital to our growth. We've got to be around other people. Sometimes we just need to hear it from someone else and it kind of wakes us up to understand it better. Sometimes there's conversations that happen that you go, oh, that's it. I've been hearing that in my own quiet time and now that you said it, yep, I got it. That's conviction. That is the Holy Spirit speaking through someone to you. Those moments are beautiful and we desperately need them. I want to encourage you, if you are not a part of a small group, to think about it. Think about joining a small group. We have different seasons. We have fall, winter, and spring. And so in August, when we start announcing about small groups and registration opening up, would you please consider joining one? Make it a part of your fall schedule to think, yep, I'm going to do that. Because one night out of my home, yeah, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, it can be an inconvenience. But what I'm going to gain by being with fellow believers who want more of God is exponentially more valuable. If you have kiddos, we're here to help them too. We want to disciple them here on Wednesday nights. We have from pre-K all the way up to 12th grade where we're going to meet with them and we're going to teach them spiritual disciplines because our goal is to assist them in developing spiritual knowledge and disciplines that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. We want to partner with you as parents to come alongside you and bolster what you are doing at home so that these kiddos do not walk away when they leave your home, right? We want them so rooted in Christ that it is okay when they leave your home. They've got it, mom and dad. You don't have to worry because they are rooted in Christ. You have taught them. We have helped. And now they're ready to engage the world. That is the body of Christ. Iron, sharpening iron, small groups, discipleship, conversations that you're having with each other. There's many things in life that take our time and attention, especially in our Western culture. We're really seeing a lot of entitlement and addiction that dull our spiritual senses. And I want to speak quickly on the addiction piece because you might automatically think that that's not you because you automatically go to substance. But I kind of want to call out our phones. I want to call that out for a moment. Because if every time our phone dings, we have to check it, is that an addiction? Talk with your kids, talk with yourself about healthy boundaries and safeguards. Because there is biologically something that goes off in our brain. Every like we get, every follow we get, it's, it's intoxicating. And we want more. But that is not where we find our purpose. That is not going to make us whole. It is only Christ that can do that. Let's be convicted of some of those things that we elevate above Christ. We need to awaken our spiritual senses and tune them into what God is doing in us, around us, and through us. We have to train our spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear, and we have to have the mind of Christ. And two ways that we can do that, two ways that we can train and hone in our spiritual senses are by fasting and Sabbath. I'm super practical, and so I love giving you guys things that you can do, right? I want you to walk out of here knowing something that you can take with you and practice and try to grow in Christ. And so we're going to focus in on fasting and Sabbath for a few minutes here. 
One of those spiritual disciplines I am not very good at, that is fasting. <laughs> uh, I like food. I really do. Um, I am not a great cooker of food, but I am a great eater of food. I really enjoy eating. Hint, hint, anybody can invite me over to dinners. That's very welcome. Uh, enjoy eating and chatting with people. But fasting is designed to reveal our dependence. It's not there to tweak our habits. It is not a diet plan. Fasting takes our focus off our flesh and puts it back on our Father. In a recent conversation with an acquaintance of mine, he was telling me that he was doing a fast, and he, he said, I just decided I'm going to not eat for three days, and I did it. And I was like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> like, what? Now, he wasn't doing it for any spiritual reason, uh, but he just decided not to eat and did it, and evidently it was no big deal for him. Uh, one thing he said is, uh, because I wasn't eating, though, I did notice I was smelling things I had never smelled before. I thought, fascinating. But isn't that true? That if his sense of taste wasn't being met, his sense of smell started to heighten, right? And I remember thinking spiritual implications for that. If we are denying ourselves physical food, then what are we looking to for our sustenance? God, right? We start to shift our focus from the next meal to our next prayer time, our next worship time, our next ah, moment, just resting in who God is. When we fast, there's an intentionality that causes us to hone in on other things, like Jesus, not our next meal. I believe that we live in a time that requires us to shake off apathy and seek God with a desperation like we never have before. And I can tell you, since I have actually done some fasting, <laughs> that when I do, man, I am never disappointed. What I receive from the Lord is always valuable. It is always right on time. And I can literally feel my spirit syncing up with his spirit in a way that is not the same when I'm not fasting. So I encourage you, I challenge you to fast. Another way to quiet the noise around us and train our spiritual focus is by having a Sabbath. And probably a lot of you are going to go, yeah, 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 I know, I know. One day a week to not work, to chill and relax, I get it. I want to challenge your thinking on that because it's so much more. It allows us to reorient our relationship to God. The biblical Sabbath means an acceptance of the sovereignty of God. Taking time to acknowledge, I am not God. And giving him back his rightful place in our lives. A.J. Sabata so beautifully said this, Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do. Rather, we are who we are loved by. Sabbath and the gospel scream the same thing. We do not work to get to a place where we finally get to breathe and rest. That is slavery. Rather, we rest and breathe and enjoy God that we might enter into rest. We all need a rest. Physical, intellectual, emotionally, social, and even spiritual. We've got to stop toiling and just be. Just be. We were made in God's image. And so one of the gifts of Sabbath is that it brings us the reminder of our true identities. Time with Jesus helps us align our ambitions to his will, and embrace who we truly 
are. Closeness with God establishes that identity. If we do not know God, we do not know ourselves. Story and identity are intimately connected. We know each other by our stories, right? That's how we get to know each other better. We hear each other's stories, and then we understand a little bit more about who that person is. Well, the same is true for God. We have to know him and where we fit in the big God story from creation to new creation. You have been made with a purpose. He has a reason that you were born at this time in history. That is exciting. I told you last week about a good book called A Practical Guide to Culture, and they pointed out something that was so eye-opening to me, and I wanted to bring it to you. Postmodernism rejects the existence of a universal story of history and humanity. We see a young people who don't know who they are, largely because they live in a postmodern culture with no coherent story. What is the solution for that? I'd say discipleship. That's the only thing that's going to combat that confusion. Young people and new believers have to know not only how to behave or what to believe, but who they are as a redeemed image bearer of the creator. As a body of Christ, that's our responsibility. We're supposed to tell them that. We have to disciple the next generation so that they understand who they are in Christ. We really can't accomplish those tasks without knowing God well, without loving him well, and without letting his love come through us. Our closeness to our creator and savior informs our identity, and the joy of our salvation should be evident to all those around us. If we lack confidence in our identity, how will we reach those who are questioning their place in this world, their purpose, their very identity? John 15, one through five says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit, if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our closeness to God matters. As we understand better who he is and what he's done for us, we gain confidence in who we are in him. But I want to point out something Closeness is not just proximity. You being here in a church service does not mean you are close to God. In 1 Samuel, we see Eli, who was a priest in the tabernacle, and he had two sons. They were all very close to God in proximity. They worked right in God's house, showing other people who God was. However, those two boys' hearts were far from God. In fact, God said to Eli, you have to do something. They are blaspheming me. You need to deal with that. Do you remember Hannah, who couldn't have children, and she cried out to the Lord and begged him, God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. 
And she did. She brought little Samuel to the temple, and he started working with Eli. He started being invested in by Eli. And this is what scripture said. In those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. It was not normal at that time for people to be hearing from God, but Samuel did. He had the same proximity as Eli's other sons. But he was close to God. His heart, his eyes and ears were turned towards God in a way that the others were not. Same family, same dynamic, but different. We all have a choice to make. Let's make the choice to listen to God. We see back to that conviction piece, right? The Holy Spirit convicts. And so the message that Samuel heard actually was not one of hope and excitement. It was one of judgment that was coming on Eli and his sons because they had not, he had not corrected his sons. After Samuel hears the message from God, Eli asks him about it. And he tells him of the coming judgment. And I love Eli's response where he says, okay. I trust God's will. Man. That's big. That even though he literally heard that his family would no longer be allowed to serve God in the way that they did, he was okay with it because, because he trusts the sovereignty of God. Do we trust the sovereignty of God? Are we close to God? Something I said last week a few times, and I hadn't planned it, but it seemed appropriate, and I'm going to say it again today, is wake up, church. There seems to be some slumber. Let's wake up and listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be steadfast in our beliefs, but then also listening when he convicts us of our sin and shows us, thing in our, shows us things in our life that we need to turn away from and repent of. The Holy Spirit is there to convict us. God uses his word, his spirit, and his people. As we head into our response time, I want to challenge you to listen, right? I could talk all day. I love to talk. <laughs> but I will stop, and I will allow God his moment with us, right? Because this is one of those spiritual disciplines that we teach kiddos downstairs. You have to quiet yourself and listen. So as our worship team comes, they're going to play, and we're going to be quiet. And we're going to listen for the Holy Spirit. Because there may be things in your life today that the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of and say, knock it off, right? Or maybe you're here and you have never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe he is not your Savior and Lord yet. The Holy Spirit convicts of that too and says, hey, come, come to me. The Holy Spirit draws our hearts to him. So you all have, hopefully, a little blue sheet. And what I'm going to ask you to do with this is while you are just quiet and listening for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, once you hear it, once you know what he's saying to you, write it down. Write it down. And then come lay it at the altar. 
I often teach the kids there's no power in that, right? <laughs> Just because you come late at the altar, that, that there's not some kind of magical, like now it's gone out of your life. However, it's symbolic, and it moves us. It takes us recognizing what it is God's saying to us and then saying, yeah, I, I want to get rid of that. I want to lay it at the altar. I want to lay it at your feet, God, because you are the only one who can change our lives and transform us from the inside out. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you? Are you apathetic? Are you seeking the gifts of God and not just God himself? Let's take some time to evaluate where we're at.